Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Welcome to PDI, boys and girls. It's time for another public display of imagination adventure. So hop on board and shush the crowd because we're about to step inside the pages of another thrilling bestseller. And there's no telling what we might find. I got six strings, the story's worth telling, learn it all where the turtles meet. Now it's full steam ahead with these dreams in my head, making tracks where I stole my feet. My feet are bare and my clothes out of way, I got you thinking that I ain't no one. See right here, I show you my dear, you'll be one more when I'm done. Theme music for the Public Display of Imagination podcast is provided by Joe King, J Bone Fettinger, and Zachary Motes. You can find the complete playlist from Milltown Road Band on Spotify. Welcome to Public Display of Imagination, where we talk to authors about their deepest, darkest secrets the pet they always wanted to have, the superhero they always wanted to be, and sometimes we even talk about their books. I'm your host, Mark Dwayne Combs. With any luck, no one will ever find out that you listen to this show, and if they do, you can always play that I Lost a Beck card. And now that we've got all that nonsense out of the way, let's find out who we're talking with today. Haunted by his parents' death and his own career failures, Dr. Brian Scott has begun to settle for the life he's been given. Until he's recruited, kidnapped by military insiders known only as the group, Brian joins a team of world-class scholars on a confidential initiative. Their mission? To prepare mankind for a new reality the reality of alien disclosure. As the team is briefed on the government's involvement with extraterrestrials, strange things begin to happen. Disappearances, visitations, murder. Something just isn't right. Peeling layer after layer of deception and counter-deception, Brian moves towards a shocking revelation that will forever alter how mankind sees itself. The book is entitled The Facade, and we're joined today by its author, Dr. Michael S. Heiser. Mike, thank you so much for joining me. How are we doing today? All right? Yep. Yep. Ready to talk about the uh, the facade. I started reading this book a while back with my wife. We we're reading different sections of it to each other and thoroughly enjoying it. But I know this is a book that you wrote, what, almost 15 years ago, 12, 15 years ago, something like that? Oh, yeah, something like that. Don't well, make me count. <laughs> <laughs> well, what was going on in life that all of a sudden you decided, hey, you know what, I'm going to sit down and write a novel? I had always wanted to uh, try writing a novel. So when I when I got through my Ph.D. exams, you know, the art department, a lot of the people in our department, it was sort of an unspoken tradition that once you passed your exams, you sort of took a year off. You know, there were guys who would tinker at their house or tinker at their car, and I thought, well, I'm I'm going to write a novel. 
that's what I'm going to do just because I was kind of burned out. So I had a, a good job. I, you know, to do that, I, I worked late night, third shift as a security guard. That's what I did going through grad school. One of, well, one of about three or four jobs anyway. So I had long chunks of time and I thought, well, I'm going to take the first year, what should be my dissertation and do something fun. <laughs> so that's what I decided to do. Now, how did you go, okay, I've got all of this background study that I've done in my college work, in my preparatory for dissertation, but this is the topic that I'm going to pull out of the haystack and chase. I mean, what led to that? Well, I, I mean, I had a, I figured, you know, I've always been interested in paranormal stuff. Uh, I got seriously interested in UFO stuff, um, in uh, 1997, I had been interested up to that point, but there was that was sort of a watershed year for me, and so I I thought, well, l- let's throw you know all this stuff into the blender, you know, so to speak, and, and see what comes out. I had a command of ancient texts. I I knew a good bit about the UFO stuff. I mean, I I was a regular listener to Coast to Coast, so I was sort of up to date on all the crazy conspiracy you know kinds of talk. And I thought, why not? You know, let's just throw it all in there and see what comes out. And I wanted it to be, uh, I wanted everything in the book to be factual. In other words, I could trace it somewhere to, you know, credible research material. Uh, and, and so that's, that was the, the approach, the tactic. But then, of course, the story was, you know, made up essentially how I connected all those dots. And you've got some really interesting stuff in there. Some documents I had seen, and we'll talk about some things in just a moment, but you've got some stuff in there I had never seen before. So it's pretty evident that you dug pretty deep on this stuff. Yeah, well, I had the time to do it. (laughs) You know, again, should have been working on my dissertation, but it's like I'm just kind of burned out. I'm going to do something fun for a while. And and it, it was fun. I mean, I... Uh, to this day, it is the most fun thing I do is to is to write fiction. I'm I'm I, there's a sequel out now to the facade, but I I'm really looking forward to doing number three because it it really is fun. It's it's a diversion uh, for me. And without the uh, overnight security guard shift this time. I yeah, guess. yeah. In, in fact, for the sequel, I I wasn't sure. It took a long time to produce a sequel because I had to go back to my dissertation. Then I had to get—I had a real job and, and whatnot—and and I wasn't sure that I could pull off a sequel because I didn't have the long stretches of time. So the real question was: Can you do this in like hour-long segments? Um, you know, is that possible? Because I, I hadn't done it that way before, so I had to—I had to sort of retrain myself to do number two. Yeah, sometimes life just gets in the way of the things that we kind of want to do and are drawn to. You mentioned that there's so many things in this book as far as documents and quotes, I might add, that Mm -hmm. are, they're factually based. One of the many that stood out to me is a quote that you have from Reagan, which I think a lot of people are familiar with, where Reagan said, in our obsession with antagonisms of the moment, we often forget how much unites all of the members of our humanity, perhaps we need some outside universal threat to make us recognize this common bond, I occasionally think how quickly our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from the outside world. 
I'm reading through some of these things, Mike, and I'm just envisioning that somewhere in your office there's that famous X-Files poster I want to believe. <laughs> I do have it. I, I can't tell you what season it's from. <laughs> <laughs> I've got the Mulder and Scully badges too, but they're. <laughs> <laughs> did, did, did you and, have and your por- and portraits? That of, I've got to ask. Did you had your Did you have your list of of favorite quotes that you just had to find a place to work in somehow? Well, I, I had a, a a good body of them, uh, and then you know I, I I more or less just decided well I have to make a file because I kind of like the idea of not only. Uh, at the chapter headings, I wanted to use quotes, but you know, somewhere there, there are occasions within the, the context of the story that that's useful. So yeah, I've, I've collected a good number of them. Mike, in the UFO research that you did to set the scene and establish the backdrop for this book, did you come across anything that caught you by surprise or maybe caused you to step back and rethink some things? Well, in, in terms of, of the facade, uh, there were certain descriptions, you know, of, of like the cattle mutilation thing that I thought were, were really um, kind of astonishing, very surprising. Uh, so I, I would say some of that stuff, uh, there are a few, again, suggestive quotes that I, I thought were real um, – eye-catching that I that I didn't expect. I have a different context for those uh, now, and, and, and the reader might as well once they're through the, the, the second book. But, I mean, they're, they're there. You know, that, that stuff's out there. You can, you can find it and track it down, and, you know, what, what you make of it, of course, you know, is why I used it, uh, that it's not something that, uh, you know, is really easily explainable. Um, so it was really good fodder, you know, for, for what I was doing. I just got a book in the mail a couple of weeks ago called Mirage Men. And I'm pretty mm. sure you're familiar with this book. A little backstory <laughs> as to how some of this information has been leaked out in some instances. And maybe some cases information has been put out there for public consumption and just let the public run with it wherever they may unchecked. Are you familiar with that work? Yeah, and I've also seen the documentary. I, I'd recommend both uh, to to listeners. Um, the, the book, of course, has a lot more detail, but the documentary's done pretty well too. And it, I think it is a good example. The whole episode with Doty uh, and, the, and Paul Benowitz are they're they're mentioned pretty heavily uh, in both of those resources. The government is not above manipulating citizens to propel a certain narrative or, or a certain misdirection. And so, you know, in, in the book, you you are confronted with real things, but then the, the reader is also confronted with, well, what we thought was this, maybe it's that. And there's a lot of that in the facade, which, of course, is why it, get, it gets the name that it gets, because there are competing intelligences, let's just put it that way. Uh, that are trying to move the herd in different directions, and that uh, you know the, the the greater evil intelligence is 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 using the lesser ones, but that only the reader knows that the characters don't know that. Um, so the so the reader actually gets a a more in depth glimpse of how the facade is working and what the facade actually is. Uh, you know, moving the reader t- toward those those directions and those sorts of things. Uh, like Mirage Men, 
they they happen in real time, you know, in in you know our own situation. And for a novel like The Facade, they're very illustrative uh, and useful again to you know just get across the thought that well what you what you thought this is might not be what it is what what you think you know may not be so that sort of thing yeah my wife i think got a late night urge to record the documentary for me and then i watched it while she was away and i just couldn't wait to order the book so i ordered the book mm-hmm. so i've kind of dipped into both there we're going to come back on the other side of this break and get into the characters we haven't introduced any of them yet you're going to find them fascinating we're going to kind of pick mike's brain as to what drives some of these characters in his story please stay tuned this is brad parks the author of closer than you know and you're listening to public display of imagination with your host mark Dwayne combs Someone once said, if you don't howl at the moon, you'll never hear the echo. Are you an independent author who works hard to self-publish and self-promote your work? Being in the right place at the right time can impact who discovers your work and pushes your overall exposure to the next level. Imagine your author bio and your volume of work in the spotlight of a dedicated promotional page at publicdisplayofimagination.com. Imagine seeing your work featured in our Twitter feed, on Facebook, and Instagram. Imagine having a 15-minute, professionally edited audio interview of you talking about your latest release, complete with promotional graphics. Public Display of Imagination is now booking with independent, self-published authors. Limited availability and some restrictions apply. Find out more at publicdisplayofimagination.com slash indie authors. That's publicdisplayofimagination.com slash I-N-D-I-E authors. You've worked hard. It's time to let the world hear you howl. This is MJ LaBeth, the author of the Last Cold Case series, and you're listening to Public Display of Imagination with your host, Mark Dwayne Combs. I could talk for hours. Send you cards and flowers. But that will mean a thing. All right, we're back with our guest, Dr. Michael Heiser. He's the author of the book, The Facade, which we're talking about today. Mike, you've got one of the most extensive websites I've ever visited as far as resource material. And a couple of the links that you have in your website are things that I think those who are enjoying this conversation would really enjoy. Uh, I think of UFO religions, a section mm-hmm. called Paleo Babble, and then you've got a section on the ancient aliens phenomenon. Yeah, UFO Religions is sort of the blogging space for just what it sounds like. People who, whose worldview and really their, if, they, if you want to call it their faith commitment, uh, is really framed and molded by UFO stuff. You know, the whole idea of intelligent aliens, you know, sort of redefining theism and Christianity and whatnot. So the religious aspects of it is where I tend to focus. And then paleo babble is really, uh, not, not totally devoted to, uh, talking about ancient alien nonsense, but lots of nonsense, you know, just, you know, kind of strange things people believe about antiquity or the ancient world. 
and ancient aliens is naturally part of that. There, the, I, I was part of a documentary people should know about. If you go to YouTube and look up Ancient Aliens uh, Debunked, it's a three-hour documentary. It's free. I think the last time I checked, there were around five million views of this, but it's I, I'm in that. I didn't make it, but I'm in it. It, it goes through the scenes and the claims uh, on the seri- of that series on the History Channel, I think, in a, in a pretty effective way. And then my own research is sort of, you know, focused in that's my my main ancient aliens kind of website is sitchinisrong.com, where I address the claims of uh, Zechariah Sitchin. Which are still extremely popular today. I'm really surprised by that. And, of course, you have to be a little bit careful. You can ruffle some feathers with that one, you know. It's it's almost like the works of Zachariah Sitchin were inspired by the Anunnaki themselves. I don't know. I, I I'm actually not surprised that that people still. I mean, you have people who want to be famous in this little circuit, and so they just adopt you know Sitchin's work. Sort of, they become the the heirs apparent, and a lot of it just isn't examined. People read it and say, oh, it's not Darwinism. Oh, it's not that crazy Christian stuff. So let's just go with this, and they they don't examine any of it. Mm-hmm. Yep. With this particular book, a, an author gets an idea, but that idea really has to, to grow and to, to kind of develop before you really know where you want to go with a story. And as I've talked to authors over the last several months, what I've found is one book kind of naturally leads to the next. What sparked the idea for this particular storyline? I mean, at what point did you sit down and go, OK, this is kind of in a nutshell where this should go? I don't read much fiction, um, but, you know, I was a big fan of the X-Files and, and, you know, shows like that. I like misdirection. So I wanted to to make that a heavy component uh, of the story. And there's lots of misdirection uh, in, in the facade. And as far as the, the, the storyline goes, I thought, well, what, what better premise, you know, to sort of start off with it would be, what would the impact be? On you know traditional conservative you know quote unquote Bible believing Christianity, if a genuine extraterrestrial disclosure happened, you know something that was basically undeniable, and so that became the orienting focus of of, of the story and and the main character who is who's basically me. I mean, I, and I did that because I'd never written fiction before, so I had to know somebody. <laughs> I had to know one character at least uh, in the novel, and so Brian, the, the the lead character, is basically me. When I was in in college, you know that that those sort of years, um, with with all his his uh, insecurities and 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 whatnot. So I wanted to confront him with that question, and he becomes again the the main focus that that sort of propels the story, and then it, it morphs at one point to well, what if we thought and and we had demonstrated to us was a genuine disclosure what if what if it wasn't what if it was something worse uh, at least potentially and so those two thoughts you know are what propel the story one at the beginning and then it there you have this transition and this you know there's this disagreement you know people don't quite know what to do with what they were told uh, as as they work their way through the story and I think that's one of the things that, that kept my wife and I really riveted to the storyline as it unfolded. 
Because whereas on the one hand it's fiction, on the other hand there's enough things in here that you're looking at it and going, this could really have some bases here that we're working on, on both counts. You describe Brian as being recruited by the group. <laughs> and, and, and I'm going to yeah. let you, you know, kind of unpack that a little bit. Yeah, he's not exactly, uh, you know, in line with his will. I mean, he is, he's basically abducted by a couple of guys, uh, you know, agents, sort of men in black kind of figures. Um, and he does, you know, obviously, he's, he's so out of place in this. Uh, he, he doesn't have a job. He's just, you know, he's made it through graduate school. His parents have been murdered. He's, he's basically going nowhere. He doesn't really have much of a future. And why he would be a subject of interest really to anyone uh, for anything is, is kind of a conundrum to him. But he finds out that the connection is, is a professor he had, uh, while he was in college that, that, uh, sort of a mentor figure uh, for him when and he's a pretty isolated person you know Brian is and so that sort of gets sorted out as to why he was chosen uh, to do this particular thing that his friend is involved with his friend is very highly placed uh, in the intelligence community he was a political science professor and so that's how he gets drawn into the whole set of circumstances now, each person involved in this, and I'll reference it as a think tank, so to speak, just for a loose mm -hmm. uh, term that we can work with, but each person who's involved in this is highly specialized in their field. Brian brings some unique research to the table, but it's not necessarily the traditional Christian perspective that you would expect. That's brought about, you know, kind of from another character that you develop, Father Andrew Benedict. Mm -hmm. Um what was the juxtaposition there? You've got two quote-unquote Christian perspectives that are kind of working together to, to develop a theme here. Yeah, uh, Andrew, uh, Father Benedict, uh, was sort of my nod to Malachi Martin, a mm -hmm. uh, very famous Jesuit scholar, and he was a, he was a legit scholar. I've, I've seen his dissertation, one of them anyway. Um, and so I, I wanted to, again, have this little nod, you know, to, to Martin, and I thought I would use Benedict to do that, because Benedict prods Brian to certain conclusions that Benedict uh, suspects, and, and Brian is a bit hesitant to sort of go there. And, and so I wanted to use that relationship to try to, you know, move Brian along not in a suspicious way, but of course, you, in the story, you don't really know if he's going off in the wrong direction or if he's heading in the right direction. Uh, but but Benedict was, was very useful for that. Be, useful for that, and and Benedict is sort of other than the the political science guy who's kind of in a leadership role. Benedict is the one who essentially becomes you know Brian's friend. I mean, he he makes other friends in in the group, but he's the immediate connection because of their, their religious, uh, background. And Benedict is familiar with Brian's work, which Brian thinks is just like, boy, I didn't know. I, I didn't think anybody had ever read anything I did. <laughs> and, and, and his connection, of course, not only to Benedict, but also to the, the other fellow, Neil Banstra, um, is an article he wrote about the implications of extraterrestrial life 
for again the the conservative you know Bible believer. You know, he, Brian had been teaching at a Bible college right out of grad school, and this article leads to him getting fired. And so he had again, he has no future. He's basically going nowhere. But but his conversations with Neil, again his old professor from Johns Hopkins really struck a nerve with Neil when Neil is drawn into this sort of dark, murky, black op world and the extraterrestrial question gets put on the table. Brian is the first person he thinks of that could help him think well uh, about what he's been you know, thrown into. And the Catholic community is kind of ahead of the curve on this. They, in, mm-hmm. in real life, they're kind of awaiting or anticipating an alien disclosure at some point, and they're prepared for it, are they not? Yeah, and, and there's there's a character who gets, you know, meets an unfortunate end, uh, Mantello, Father Mantello, who's an astronomer, who is a real person, by the way, not a, not a, a priest, but uh, in, in fact, as we speak here, a, a week ago, I, I had another meeting with Mantello. So, uh, again, there, there's a real person behind that who does what Mantello does mm-hmm. uh, in, in real life. But I wanted to, again, acknowledge that, that, that you're right. They are ahead of the curve. But Benedict is someone who, again, he's a Jesuit. And so he's well aware of this. And Benedict has, has a lot going on in his own history. But, again, he's my, that's my nod to, to Martin. Benedict is very suspicious of the authority structures in the church. Uh, he does believe that they have been uh, infected by darkness. And so he, he's also there for that reason, to help Brian potentially, again, navigate who his friends might be and who, who to look out for, uh, that sort of thing. But, but you don't really know a whole lot about Benedict uh, in the story. And, and as the story goes on, you start to learn more and more. And, and the reader is led to think, well, you know, what about this guy? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you kind of so keep you him have in the shadows a little bit early on. Yeah, uh, Brian also has, uh, as everyone kind of needs in any type of a fiction or a novel, he kind of has someone who's openly combative with him at times. She kind of mm-hmm. agitates things. She's very skeptical of his work, uh, even seems to the point of having disdain as to whether or not his work is legit or worthwhile or worth consideration. Her name's Melissa. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Melissa's very hostile. Uh, and and again, the reader eventually learns where that comes from. But she is, disdain is a, is a good word. She's very condescending. She's cruel to him in particular. Uh, she has, you know, some serious anger issues. Uh, and again, because of her own uh, history. And, and she is not only personally and professionally antagonistic to him, but she also is a good yeah, a good Melissa's a good, a good thinker. She's a good character for uh, one who would suspend judgment. And even when when Brian takes a turn in this or that direction, Melissa is there to to sort of keep him in check. Sometimes in an, in a conscious or an unconscious way, but uh, she's she's definitely at the things that you described. She has really no time at all uh, for him or what for Brian or what he stands for. Yeah, these three characters that we've just talked about, folks, really are tightly knit and work together to move this story along. It's it's really something that we enjoyed the interaction between these three characters as they move from 
having just met each other to where this story leads. On the front cover, you say or you disclose that every document included in this book is a real, actual document. And there's a couple of things in here I've just got to ask you about, mm-hmm. and because it surprised me. It was, it was uh, a learning experience for me. One is a quote from an astronaut, Scott Carpenter, who said, At no time when the astronauts were in space were they alone there was a constant surveillance by UFOs. Now, that dates back to the early 60s, and apparently a photo that NASA has refused to release. Is there a story behind that? Yeah, there, there is. This is part of the, uh, the astronaut UFO uh, NASA lore. There's another quote in the book from someone named Donna Hare who talks about uh, UFOs being regularly airbrushed out of photos before they were they were publicly released, mm-hmm. and these are real people, you know, who who worked at NASA. Um, they they see things, they hear things, they think things on the basis of what they uh, see, hear, and think. They they draw their own conclusions. Um, you know, the the real question in my mind with all of that sort of stuff is: Are they processing? the reality behind what they're hearing, seeing, uh, correctly. Uh, that, to me, it always comes down to that, you know, uh, maybe what's being airbrushed out. Okay. It is an unidentified flying object, but does that mean it's extraterrestrial? Well, you know, if you ask Donna Harris, she would have that suspicion mm-hmm. because why else are you airbrushing them out of, out of photos? You know, and, and there could be other explanations, but, you know, she and the UFO community are going to go one particular direction with that. Uh, somebody else would go a different direction with that. But yeah, it's it's all that sort of matrix of um, you know real lore <laughs> when it comes to uh, NASA and, and UFOs and and I would say what what else is up there that you know the the public is being shielded from. Again, it, it can go a couple of different directions, all of which are fascinating. Um, and that, again, that's just good material for, for a book like the facade. You've got another quote from Brian that I found interesting. Obviously you wrote it. It's not a direct quote from history, but it really impacted me enough that I highlighted it and underlined it. And it says this, God doesn't owe us an exhaustive history of everything he's done since the beginning of time. Mike, there's a lot of people that feel like if it's not in the Bible, then it's just not true. You threw that in there, and and my mind just went to spinning because there's all kinds of things that we know in our world that just absolutely aren't in the Bible. Did you have a purpose behind that? I mean, is is that send a message of, you know, hey, maybe we interpret the Bible in our own reflection as opposed to maybe giving it some room for latitude at times? Yeah, I, I, the, the quote's in there because that is a particular Bible myth that I think really needs to be disposed of for all sorts of reasons. It, it's very poor thinking to, to think, again, in, in, in its most simplistic terms, that it can't be real unless it's mentioned in the Bible. Well, you know, toilet paper is real, okay? Right. You know, <laughs> we know about planets beyond Saturn, and nobody in the ancient world, you know, knew that for sure. 
Uh, we know about microwaves. You know, we know about germ, how germs travel through the bloodstream. I mean, there, there, there are just tens of thousands of things that are demonstrably real that are not in the Bible. So if that's your mentality about the Bible, you're thinking very poorly. And in, in a lot of these, these examples that I just gave, they're fairly trivial. But there are really important things that if you take that same approach to the Bible, and of course, in the in the case of the book, it's about are there extraterrestrials? Mm-hmm. There are some really big picture things that are really important that to use the same approach, the same hermeneutic could potentially uh, set you up for a fall as a Bible believer and set the Bible up, make it vulnerable to ridicule. And I think that needs to just be dispensed with. Yeah, I had someone hit me with something along that line a couple of weeks ago, and my first thought was, you know, Japan's not in the Bible, neither is nuclear reactor meltdown, but, you know, if if you were in the Far East, you wouldn't have trouble finding either one of those things to be a reality. Yeah, I mean, what what God, what's in the mind of God, again, even if God wanted and tried and succeeded in giving us everything in the mind of God, we're not going to be able to process that. You know, the the Bible is a very selective, focused, intelligently crafted book. It accomplishes the purposes to which God wanted it uh, to, to succeed. And so I think we just need to think better about what was the point in even producing the thing. When we come back, we're going to bring up a topic that we have totally omitted to this point, that just has to be in any discussion about UFOs, factual or fictional. That will be Roswell. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. This is Carter Wilson, the author of Mr. Tender's Girl, and you're listening to Public Display of Imagination with your host, Mark Dwayne Combs. Someone once said, if you don't howl at the moon, you'll never hear the echo. Are you an independent author who works hard to self-publish and self-promote your work? Being in the right place at the right time can impact who discovers your work and pushes your overall exposure to the next level. Imagine your author bio and your volume of work in the spotlight of a dedicated promotional page at publicdisplayofimagination.com. Imagine seeing your work featured in our Twitter feed, on Facebook, and Instagram. Imagine having a 15-minute, professionally edited audio interview of you talking about your latest release, complete with promotional graphics. Public Display of Imagination is now booking with independent, self-published authors. Limited availability and some restrictions apply. Find out more at publicdisplayofimagination.com slash indie authors. That's publicdisplayofimagination.com slash I-N-D-I-E authors. You've worked hard. It's time to let the world hear you howl. We're at the midway point of this adventure, and there's more great stuff on the way. I just wanted to take a moment to thank you for letting the Public Display of Imagination podcast be a part of your day, wherever you are, whatever you might be doing. We hope you'll subscribe to the show and consider giving us a rating and a review through whatever podcast listening platform you're using to listen to the show. Right now, you're listening to one of our first ever interviews we recorded back in 2018. 
we've remastered the audio and uploaded it to our server as a part of the public display of Imagination Season 1 collection. Other authors you'll hear from in Season 1 include Carter Wilson, Brad Parks, M.J. LaBeouf, James Heyman, and Leslie Nagel. If you're an avid reader in search of your next favorite author, you've tuned into the right podcast. And if you're one of our many listeners who is working away at your own keyboard each day, fine-tuning your upcoming international bestseller, well, we've got you covered too. I'm sure you're going to find something in today's conversation that will be an encouragement to you and stoke your writing motivational fire. Thanks again for giving us a listen. If you're one of our many listeners who use Amazon for your shopping from time to time, please let us be your doorway. That helps the show, and we certainly appreciate your kindness. Now, let's get back to this week's conversation. This is Leslie Nagel, the author of the Oakwood Book Club Mysteries, and you're listening to Public Display of Imagination with your host, Mark Dwayne Combs. I know what you're thinking. Think you got me figured out. All right, we're back with our guest, Mike Heiser. We're talking about his book, The Facade. This is a work of fiction, but you may kind of wonder how much of it is actually fiction. It really grabs a hold of you as you're reading through it. Mike, on your website, you've got a tab for books, and under that, you've got something for recommended reading. This is just a resource library that I stumbled across, but I've got to give you an opportunity to tell folks about this. Yeah, I, I, I frequently get questions about, hey, you know, what's a good book on X, Y, or Z? And so I thought I would list them, uh, and you know, it took a little while, but uh, they're up there, sort of the main go-to books on all sorts of subjects. Of course, UFOs are, are part of that, but also biblical studies and, you know, ancient world studies, ancient languages and, and that sort of thing. So, yeah, I, I hope people definitely use it. Uh, they can get a good uh, good recommendation. Again, I don't recommend the silly stuff. I recommend the serious stuff. Yeah, there are probably about 15, 18 links here Some of the ones that would relate to the conversation we're having would be UFO research, UFO religions and belief systems. There's even stuff from SETI, paranormal, parapsychology, et cetera, et cetera. So Mm -hmm. there's a lot of information there. Before we went to the break, Mike, I teased Roswell. And the reason I teased it is because there's something in this book that I just absolutely missed and wasn't aware of. And that has to do with the, I believe it's the 50th anniversary of Roswell and a press conference where some information yeah. was disclosed that's like, what did he really say? Yeah, that, that was the turning point for me. Again, in 1997, I was listening uh, to the CNN press conference for the 50th anniversary. And again, I, I had read enough about Roswell to know, you know, the basic framework of the story and what the issues were. And, and at the CNN conference, the uh, the, the, that was being conducted by a guy named Colonel Haynes uh, from the Air Force. And this was the Air Force's third explanation for Roswell, which, which alone tells you something. But uh, a, a reporter at the press conference asked Colonel Haynes, you know, he said, well, you know, you know Colonel Haynes, you know, the Air Force has reported here that uh, the, the bodies, the so-called bodies that were found at Roswell, you know, the crash site, were actually Air Force test dummies. But the report of the Air Force itself notes that these test dummies were not 
used until the early 1950s. So how do you explain that because of the event in 1947? And what I thought the colonel would say is, well, yeah, that okay, that's a typo. I misspoke. You know, th- thank you. And then here's the real answer. But he didn't. He stuck to the report. <laughs> he said, yes, that's correct. And the reporter's like, well, how – you know, everybody – we're sitting here in 1997. It's the 50th anniversary. So what – how do those two things go together? And the colonel actually said – and I went out and got the transcript from the CNN conference right after I heard it because I couldn't believe it. He said, well, we think that the witnesses to the Roswell event uh, have undergone time compression. And he's like, what's that? <laughs> and and what he – what the colonel meant was, well, we think that, that these witnesses thought that they were recalling something from 1947, but it was actually something that happened in the early 1950s, which is where you get the, the, the crash test dummies you know, into the picture. And I, I listened to that and I thought, that answer is so ridiculous. Somebody somewhere wants this myth to live yeah, that's group delusionism is what we're describing, right? Yeah, it, 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 I mean, because we're not talking four or five people. When it comes down to the Roswell event, you're talking about a couple hundred. And, and the event itself was in newspapers across the country, mm-hmm. you know, picked it up from the Roswell, you know, Daily Record. And, and it was so absurd to offer this as an explanation that that was the only conclusion I could draw, and that really sucked me into the whole thing. Because I, when I heard that, I thought, you know, I, I, I want to know. I want to know why somebody here. We have an Air Force colonel, you know, who I imagine, you know, showed up for work that day and got a phone call from a general and that said, "Son, you're going to go out today and serve your country, no matter how dumb you sound." <laughs> you know, like, like this is what you're going to say. Take one for the team. Take one for the team. You know, like somebody somewhere wants this myth to live. Mm-hmm. And I, I was just sort of fascinated by why. Why would that be? And of course, you brought up, you know, Mirage Men. Again, I think in, in hindsight. This is a convenient and, and effective, and and I'll I'll use the the word important misdirection uh, to to people within the military industrial complex. They, they had their reasons uh, for doing what they did, and 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 again, looking stupid uh, like this that uh, were important. But for the sake of the facade, yeah, I didn't want to miss that because that was sort of a watershed moment for me that took me from sort of a casual you know, interest to, there's just something here that needs to be, you know, thought about, needs to be understood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's probably some in our audience that are thinking, oh yeah, this is one of those Mandela effect things. Nope. <laughs> Folks, that, that, that's silliness. Okay. Come back yeah, in a I, little bit. This is a real world happening. And I did look, I don't think there's a on YouTube, I don't think there's a Mandela effect uh, version of this story, but I was just blown. Well, away there, by there this. will be now. <laughs> yeah, somebody will produce it, and it will get a hundred thousand hits in a week, and you and I will be responsible. Um, yeah. Mike, I, I mentioned earlier that my wife and I read books together, and usually the way that happens is we're driving somewhere, one of us is driving, the other one's reading, which means we read out loud, and that. Doesn't work well for every book, but it does for this one. It's just easy to read out loud. And to me, as someone who enjoys reading, that's important. 
Did you develop a particular pattern style of how you wanted to put things together? I mean, what did it look like for you when you sat down and went, okay, this is what I want to get on paper. This is what I want to get across. Was there a process for you? Well, you know, since I had not done it before, and I, what I did for the facade, and I actually did this for the portent, the, the sequel as well, every scene I played through my head like I was watching a movie. So there were, there were times, not so much with the facade because I had these big chunks of time, but for the second one, my wife, my wife could tell you there were times I went and I sat down at the desk and I just sat there for an hour and that was the time I had and, and we're done now, but it was productive mm-hmm. because I had now seen the scene, you know, five, six, ten times. I know who's in the room. I know who's saying what. I know who hears something and who doesn't hear something. I know how they hear. I mean, you, again, you you just you play it through your head so that the next night I can sit down and just rattle the whole thing out because I, I had played it and replayed it again and again and again. And, that, and that's essentially what I do. I If this were a movie, what would I be looking at? What would I be watching? Uh, and, you know, trying to pay attention to, to all those sorts of details. Yeah. Tips for authors. If you're working on a book, do something along this line and have someone read it out loud to you. It's not the same as you reading it yourself. There, I can't tell you the number of times we've read through different manuscripts and just looked at each other and went, wow, that really doesn't roll right off the lips. Or, you know, why did he use that name? It's so hard to pronounce didn't find that with this book. It's easy to read and it keeps it moving and that enhances the experience overall. Mike, you you mentioned earlier that this was fun to write. I know that you write a lot of nonfiction stuff. This is fiction. Which did mm-hmm. you enjoy more? I, I actually like fiction more, I, but I also think it's harder because, you know, it, with, with nonfiction, you're not making stuff up. You're doing research, you know, you, you pull this or that out, you know, you, you do the work ahead of time, you know, the lay of the land, that sort of thing. Uh, with, with fiction, that isn't the case. Now, I, I've actually had two different experiences here. With the facade, I actually outlined the entire book before I really got into it. And then I would, again, like I said, I would play each scene in my head. So I sort of knew from the very beginning what was going to happen, how everything was going to unfold. Now, there were changes because it's true. When you write fiction, your characters sort of take over the story. And so I would get to points in my outline and just know, no, nah, Melissa wouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she wouldn't say that. There's no way Brian would do that. You know? So then it would change. Now, for the, for the portent, though, I, I didn't have that luxury. I knew uh, segments. I knew scenes. And so the, the issue was how to connect them. And that was more of an ad hoc thing, at least in part, just because of my my circumstances where I had to uh, approach that. I mean, the playing it through my head that that's consistent. Uh, but as far as kind of knowing precisely where things were going, I didn't so much in in, in the portent. It, it was that was a slower uh, part of the process. So that's difficult, you know, because you, you it does force you to redo scenes. Um, I, no, I don't want this person in the room or let me change one word here that will affect the way, you know, what the reader is thinking, because you're always trying to, to make the reader think a certain thought either correctly or in terms of misdirection. Uh, there are always drifts to catch. 
uh, and you want to lay the breadcrumb trail for when they get to the end and they think, well, how in the world? And then they go back, and, okay, I, now I, I know what was going on here. Uh, that's really difficult, uh, much more difficult in my experience than you know cranking out a conference paper or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would have to agree. Writing fiction, the the uh, uh, the story has to be crafted. When you're working with nonfiction, you're just putting the facts together like a puzzle. And I don't know that I could write fiction. I'll be honest. I just don't know that I could do it. I wrap up every interview with a series of rapid-fire questions. These may or may not have anything to do with something we've talked about in the last half hour. But if you're in a comfortable chair and you feel like you can get to an ice pack after this, I'm ready to go when you are. Sure. You have a blog called Paleo Babble that uh, features a lot of different random topics. I want to ask you to give a short description of that blog and then maybe isolate a favorite topic that kind of appears over and over in that blog. Well, Paleo Babble, I think the best description there is sort of the tagline uh, that goes with it. You know, it's you know it's your antidote to the cyber twaddle <laughs> that goes on the internet about the ancient world. Uh, favorite topic I would, I would say really has to be, uh, ancient aliens. Uh, it's irritating. It's easy to, to poke fun at though, because it, people just don't examine the uh, presuppositions or the evidence, the presumed evidence that, uh, goes into that thing. You know, the, this idea that scholars are mystified by X, Y, or Z is just simply not true. Um, what people need to realize is that, not everything that's worth reading or important to read on a topic shows up on the internet. Mm-hmm. Like academic journals do not get put on the internet. So, you know, it, it's just a fallacy. And there is some good, solid information out there that would lead you to go back to programs like that and go, not necessarily are academic scholars involved in producing this yeah. for well, TV. He- even the writers of the History Channel poke fun at their own jobs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, they, they sort of know it's nonsense, but it sells. If only it would say right up front for entertainment purposes only. I don't think that would solve <laughs> anything, but, but I would appreciate it. You've got another podcast that you do called Pure and Normal, and this is something you just started not too long ago. What, it's, what inspired that venture for you? Yeah, Pure and Normal uh, of course, it sounds like paranormal, which is deliberate, but the it begins with peer, P-E-E-R. And what the the niche is, is we want to talk about paranormal topics. So it's a, it's a very big tent. But the discussion is focused on peer-reviewed research on whatever the topic happens to be. We're actually recording uh, the next one tomorrow. I think it's the, our sixth episode. We, we try to do one a month. And it's on sleep paralysis. So what what I've done is I you know I have access to all sorts of journal databases. I picked out three or four articles on sleep paralysis, and all the the co-hosts will read those, and then we'll get together and we'll talk about the research on sleep paralysis. You know what what is it? What what have, how have people tried to study this? What have they concluded? What work needs to be done yet? You know what did they find out? So on and so forth. Because I want people to know that. There really are scientists. There really are scholars in real labs. You know, they're not just white coats for TV, okay, that, that actually do this stuff. And it's worth knowing what the actual research, the real science, uh, what it exposes, and what, what it gives us. The answer to every question is not available in a Facebook meme. I'm just throwing <laughs> that out there. Mike, it's that time of the year. 
Holiday cheer is everywhere, or at least it should be. I think that's what I'm told anyway. I got to ask, what's your favorite holiday movie and why? Oh, boy. Oh, I, I, I'd have to say it's a wonderful life. Um, I like movies that show, I think, how Providence works, even though that's not an overtly, I mean, yeah, you have an angel character. Uh, I think they could do more with it theologically, but I think it's still pretty effective, you know, that we tend to believe that God only is working in the spectacular. And I think that's very contrary uh, to biblical thinking. God is always at work, and it's typically the unseen hand that uh, really, really matters. And I think a movie like It's a Wonderful Life illustrates that well. Mike Heiser, ladies and gentlemen. Mike Heiser. Today we explored the storyline of his sci-fi thriller, The Facade. Mike also has a number of nonfiction books that examine odd biblical passages that you probably never heard about during a Sunday morning flannel graph lesson. Links to his books, as well as his social media pages, are posted on the host page for this adventure at publicdisplayofimagination.com. Pick up a copy and start your journey. Mike, all the best with the fictional series. We really enjoy your work. Thanks so much for taking the time to join me on the show. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. Thank you again for listening to this remastered Season 1 public display of imagination adventure. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and will take just a moment to give us a rating and a review. We'd also appreciate it if you'd tell a friend you know who loves to read about the public display of imagination podcast. You'll find the host page for this author on the archives page under the podcast tab at publicdisplayofimagination.com. You'll also find links to their social media pages, their books on Amazon, and a special segment that we've uploaded to the Public Display of Imagination YouTube channel. We hope you'll check that out as well. Thanks again for giving us a listen. Until next time, remember, the light at the end of someone's darkness may be you. for the Public Display of Imagination podcast is provided by Joe King, J-Bone Fettinger, and Zachary Motes. You can find the complete playlist for the Milltown Road Band on Spotify.